Uh, welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us for our discussion on uh, world perspectives. I think this is a world in crisis with the horror that Palestinian people at the moment face in Gaza. We've been on the streets, streets over the last weeks and months in solidarity. We see the uh, horror of imperialism. We see how the Ukrainian people are suffering from a war that US imperialism also tried to use as an interimperialist conflict with Russia to weaken a rival where the horror is just ongoing. We see a world in crisis where now we also have a potential of further escalations, especially in the Middle, Middle East with Yemen, with Lebanon, others drawn into that. And also we face a situation where obviously the left, uh, and especially the Marxist revolutionary left, is struggling to build and fight back. I think all of that will be touched on today a horrible but also challenging new phenomenon like right-wing populism, new forms developing in the direction of fascism, like in Brazil, with Bolsonaro, with Cotmillier in uh, Argentina, Trump potentially coming back. I, I hope we can feature a lot of that. Uh, this is a meeting organized together from Democracia Socialista in Puerto Rico and uh, Reform of Revolution, a Marxist caucus in DSA here in the US. My name is Stefan. Our speakers are Andreo Cole from the Anticapitalistas in the Spanish state, and he's also a member of the leadership of the Force International. We've got Manuel Rodriguez Panch from uh, Democracia Socialista in Puerto Rico, and we've got Ana Cristina Cavalles. I hope you're generous with my pronunciation. I'm sorry. Uh, and Ana is from Eco Socialist Rebellion in PSOL in Brazil. So we have quite different views, experiences that we want to bring in here in a Marxist uh, debate, discussion, exchange. After the opening remarks, we will open it for the floor and we would keep uh, the, would ask comments to stick to three minutes maximum in a contribution. Maybe if a lot of comments want to come in, um, we've got to shorten it, but let's see how this goes. And then at the end, we would give it back to the three speakers, uh, well, three, or three main speakers. Um, yeah. That's the plan. If there are questions or whatever, obviously also uh, Andrea, Manuel, and Anna could come in and clarify things. Um, that is the plan. I ho hope we have got an interesting discussion. Now we'll just hand it over to Andreo um, to kick us off. And uh, 15 minutes, I would uh, let you know after 12, um, roughly to just let you know where we are at. And uh, um, yeah, please uh, kick us off, Andreo. Hello, hello everyone. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, gracias, compañeras y compañeros de Puerto Rico también uh, y a los de Reform Revolution. Bueno, see you in English. Um, so, very, very briefly, I'll try to uh, develop a, a little on the war in, in Gaza, also in Ukraine, and some experiences of uh, broad anti capitalist um, party building and, and the role of, of anti capitalistas in, in our case, but more broadly of uh, other car uh, comrades of the FI. So around Gaza, the, the main, uh, the main um, I think the, the, the main feature, uh, the main novelty is that it's the first time that uh, the US is a co-belligerent on the, on the side of, of the Israeli attack. Um, they're also blocking uh, calls to ceasefire in the United Nations. Um, in a very hypocritical manner. Um, and also, of course, 
we have a major support of Zionism by British, French, uh, and German governments to um, uh, where in Germany, for instance, Zionism is is a state affair. In fact, as as they state themselves, and and I think it's uh, particularly appalling to see the uh, repressive measures in France, Britain, and Germany, especially against demonstrators and mobilizations. And and I think it's 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 very striking that the responsibility in supporting Zionist ongoing genocide is proportional to the historic historic responsibility in the fascist Holocaust uh, against uh, Holocaust against the Jewish, the European Jews, um, uh, with Germany or Nazi Germany, of course, and and but also Vichy France in the forefront. So um, up to nineteen sixty seven. Um, the main uh, central ally of U.S. imperialism in the region was not Israel. In fact, it was Saudi Arabia. And uh, but the Six-Day War obviously changed the whole situation, and uh, the the American administration turned Israel into the main um, spearhead of, of of Western imperialism in, in the area. So um, this time, the U.S. is supporting. Israel uh, since since the uh, attacks of the 7th of October with a massive um, massive um, shipments of, of weapons um, and they've also uh, supported Israel milit militarily in the in the region so it can concentrate on its slaughter in in Gaza um, they've also alerted their their bases in the in the region and obviously as you know um, all this cover, um, has led also to the attack against the the guerrilla in uh, Yemen, uh, backed by by Iran in in the recent uh, days and and closest developments. So um, I think that the, um, the the military support of the U.S. to to uh, an ongoing slaughter of this proportion and and uh, and a um, quite obvious uh, genocide. Is something new. I think that the the all the shells that have been proportionate uh, sending over, shipping over, and even all the bombs, uh, including two thousand pound bombs, is a real novelty since uh, World War Two and Vietnam. In any case, I think that this conflict is condensating the the world uh, situation and, and contradictions, mainly because it it, it highlights the the major hypocrisy of of Western imperialism especially in the mirror uh, that I'll refer to now of the Ukrainian war. And there's uh, quite a, uh, an important danger of connecting main uh, block tensions and a spread into a regional open conflict, especially since the Anglo-American attacks on, on, on the Yemen militias. Uh, I think it's extraordinarily critical uh, in terms of the economic, uh, the economic situation for world trade, inflation problems, uh, energy prices, etc. And then I think we must um, uh, take into account that this there's a, a, a major support of the bulk of the of the global far right to this Zionist colonial racist and Islamophobic attack. So um, in the meantime, obviously, as, as Stefan was pointing out in his introduction, um, there are some positive aspects for revolutionaries. Massive radicalization of the youth, progressive layers of society, and immigrants in Western countries. Um, I think it's um, 
it uh, this situation is also very difficult for uh, pro-Western dictatorships in the region, in the Arab world, uh, that have been uh, oppressing the the Arab revolutions since uh, 2011. I think there's an impressive politicization of both uh, uh, American and European young Jews that can't stand the fact that the state of Israel is committing a major genocide in their name. Um, and I think it's key to interact with the, all these layers of new activists and develop further consciousness of the colonial, racist and imperialist nature of, of the Israeli state and the, the growing trend of fascistization of, of this society. On Ukraine, I think that the, um, as you know, uh, the, the left is rather divided on the issue. Um, I think that one side of the problem is the, is the left that tends to only blame Western imperialism, the role of NATO, and especially US and British imperialism to try to excuse Russian imperialist agenda for, for the aggression oh. and, and uh, ignore the fact that there's a long uh, history of, of national oppression um, uh, of the Ukrainians, uh, both under Tsarism and, and Stalinism and the colonial nature of the Putinist uh, invasion. Uh, I think there's a great, uh, there's a wide range of, of positions uh, around this, this view. On the other hand, I think characterizing the war exclusively as a national liberation war, the Ukrainians, and even an anti-imperialist struggle, ignoring the, the major economic, political and military anti-imperialist dispute around Ukraine that has been waged since the disintegration of the uh, USSR and intensified in 2004, and especially since uh, 2014, is also a problem. So at Anticapitalistas, we think that the solidarity with the Ukrainian working people and labor movement doesn't oblige us to stop condemning Western imperialism and NATO in the conflict. And in the meantime, we think that denouncing NATO must not stop us supporting the Russian opposition to the war and wishing the overthrow of Putin's autocratic regime in the EU by the Russian people itself. So I think that nearly two years after the uh, the initi initiation of the invasion by, by Putin's forces, the conflict has escalated in terms of weaponry and risks of, of confrontation with NATO, especially uh, since uh, the um, the um, uh, uh, recent uh, incident in Poland with the missiles and so on. And I think there's a risk also of collapse of the Ukrainian economy, of explosion of the debt and the infrastructural, uh, infrastructural chaos in supplies as a consequence of this escalation. So... Um, in, in this, in, in this, I think it's it is quite undeniable, undeniable. Finally, that um, this makes the whole situation uh, rather dangerous, and and especially due to the fact that Putin's uh, regime is totally linked to the outcome of this uh, conflict, and unfortunately, his withdrawal doesn't necessarily lead to a bigger to a better regime. In my in my view, in any case, I think that the outcome of the war is going to be catastrophic for the left globally due to the rise of ultranationalism, militarism, new austerity measures, and generalized growth of, of military budgets when humanity needs to invest massive um, resources to accelerate environmental transition and massive economic transformation to save the 
climate and, and stabilize the, um, the global ecological cri uh, crisis. So for what respects to the parties and the, and, the, and the role of revolutionaries trying to build broad uh, parties useful for the class struggle and to rebuild the socialist broad consciousness among, among workers. Uh, in the first place, I, I really want to recommend the, uh, you've probably most of you have already read, um, uh, Paul Murphy's recent article, Learning to Swim, an international socialist regime. I think it's brilliant, and it condensates very well uh, an approach that we um, we share completely about the role of building this kind of of experiences. No? Unfortunately, in Europe, at least um, every six or seven years, we've had a major disaster for what respects to the European left uh, since the crisis of, of of the end of the the Cold War and so on. Um, I think. Um, it is important to also state that uh, building isolated, uh, self-proclaimed revolutionary groups sometimes isn't the answer either. As, as the other day, um, Paul LeBlanc was was uh, reminding us in, in the uh, Leninist days that we've organized with Viento Sur, uh, Jacobin Latin America, Historical Materialism and Communist Press, Commun Communist Press. Um, I think it's it's very important to to be aware of the fact that it's very difficult to build revolutionary independent revolutionary parties in a context of 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 weakness or ideological social and organizational weakness of the broad left. So, just very briefly, uh, just to remind why um, major catastrophes in the in the left have have helped the right to appear as a something uh, powerful because the left has lost uh, a great deal of credibility due to these catastrophes. The first one, I won't mention very uh, extensively because I, I have a lack of time, is Refondazione Comunista. We, we tend to forget that Refondazione Comunista was the last attempt to rebuild a, a communist, um, uh, anti-capitalist communist party. And, and um, the major defeat um, in 2008 when they joined the Prodi government um, and the whole party collapsed very quickly, it, it's, it's had a great impact in the left in Europe, especially in the Mediterranean Europe. I really recommend to read the um, Perry Anderson's article, An Invertebrate Left, it, Italy's uh, Squandered Heritage, in the London Review of Books. I think it's a perfect balance sheet of the major catastrophe for the European communist left of, of uh, the... Um, unfolded in Italy. Then we have the, the, the Greek debacle in, in, in 2015 that proves two things, in my view. Uh, reach enough is, is not equivalent to seize power, to seize state power, as we know perfectly since the crushing of the Chilean Unidad Popular 50 years ago. The main problem is that the Greek uh, government, Syriza uh, government, wasn't... Uh, posing an economic uh, problem for the European Union, but rather a political one. And the European Union was determined to crush the experience uh, as an, a rebellion against centralised European neoliberal despotism. And Syriza didn't have a plan B. And, and uh, in, in our view, they were extremely naive about uh, the nature of the European institutions. They had this Europeanist uh, optimism and the illusion of reaching a pact with the Troika. Uh, I thoroughly recommend um, Stathis Kubelaki's balance sheet on the Syriza experience. 
And for respects for respects Podemos, uh, a, a recent catastrophe in the Spanish left, and, I, and I'll end in in a couple of minutes. Um, I think that the the experience ended in twenty twenty one when when uh, the leadership of Pablo Iglesias decided to join uh, Pedro Sanchez's government, putting an end to an, probably the most important experience in the Spanish left since the end of the. Uh, democratic transition at the end of the dictatorship um you know in our view there was it was a a great occasion to rebuild a massive uh repolitization of, of, of the population in spain but all this was sacrificed with the common confusion between uh historic uh, objectives and individual and caste um ambitions um, and um, we alerted from the beginning that the, the, the leadership of Podemos, <laughs> excuse me, didn't have um, a, a solid balance sheet of the experience of Greece or Syriza. They hadn't learned the the lessons from what had happened there. Um, in our view, um, the main goal of Podemos was to remain independent of social liberalism. And to be the main actor to rebuild political and social movements in the Spanish states, and uh, unfortunately we were defeated. But um, it is true that we underestimated the strength of Bonapartist uh, leadership through the media, uh, exercised by Pablo Iglesias, but not only, also Inigo Rejón, who at the beginning was in the same block against the anti-capitalist uh, to marginalise us. And even if they uh, ultimately broke in different tendencies, and nowadays we think that um, subordination of what is left of this, all these new experiences, um, is um, led by um, the integration in in the PSOE government of um, Sumar, that in fact federates most of the people that were linked at some stage with with Podemos and Izquierda Unida, the LCP. Um, and obviously, nowadays, the situation of Podemos is very catastrophic. But I think it's the natural outcome of subordination to social liberal government, where the main tendencies are restoration of uh, political normality and the acceptance of capitalist, uh, neoliberalist capitalist um, uh, economy. So um, nevertheless, we think that our participation uh, leading and launching from the beginning an initiative like Podemos, because it, it is important to remind that this initiative was um, launched um, together with the, the, the group of uh, Finnish here, the group of uh, Iglesias and Anticapitalistas at the time, Izquierda Anticapitalista was the name. Um, I think this was very useful to develop our own organization, to have mass influence, and um, also to renew and extend our organization and acquire a massive, um, a massive experience of leading uh, with um, mass politics. So I think this was a, a great success, although now uh, we're in a difficult situation to rebuild an anti-capitalist uh, left in the Spanish state. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Andreo. Uh, next speaker is Manuel from uh, Democracia Socialista in Puerto Rico. Thank you, Stefan. I want to 
uh, start by thanking the comrades from uh, Reform and Revolution and specifically to Stefan for their initiative in, in putting this meeting together. And I must say that it's a shame that other organizations chose not to participate in this effort. I, I couldn't um, avoid saying that. Um, I, uh, I will talk about the what what has been uh, called uh, the new Cold War, and if if time allows us, also. Uh, try to discuss what is the role of U.S. imperialism um, internationally, uh, ways to fight it, and what would be the role of Marxists uh, in in the social movements and the parties we are um, trying to build. The last two topics, I I think, would be better for the for the general discussions, and and we really want to hear about the experiences of the revolutionaries in in the United States. So I would start by um, saying that the, the US has had uh, a, a leading role, a potential uh, as, a, as an imperialist uh, power since the, the 90s. Um, and, and the end or the result of the previous Cold War was the hegemony of capital rather than the hegemony of just uh, uh, the United States as a nation. Um, I think that um, the principal adversaries in this um, new Cold War are um, the United States in, in one hand and China and Russia on the other hand. And the among the features of, of this new um, uh, situation internationally, I think is more comparable to the global configurations of the powers prior to the First World War and not necessarily to the, uh, to what we call uh, uh, and what we think of when we, when we say um, Cold War. And um, that, there are several factors that that I think make the situation more comparable to that prior to the First World War. Um, the first of all, I think that the Cold War between the USSR and the United States took place during a long wave of rapid economic growth after the the Second World War, uh, a period of expansion of capital which is not present uh, at the at the current uh, in the current situation. And uh, I must say also that the the um, the other aspect is the the ideological uh, contents of the Cold War uh, between the USSR and the United States, which is also absent in the current situation. And I must say that the the expression of Cold War um, was first coined, at least on the record, by. Um, the uh, German socialist leader, Edward Bernstein. And at the time, he meant the fact that Germany was engaged in a military buildup in preparation of war against France and the rest of the of the European um, rivals without yet getting into a real war, into a, a, what can be called a hot war. And and that was what he referred to as, as, as a Cold War. And... and um, 
the long wave of the accelerated growth of, or capitalist uh, development at the beginning of the 20th century saw the weakening of what was once the great capitalist power in, in that, at that time, the United Kingdom. And during the process of weakening uh, in the era uh, called by Marxist theories, the, the phase or era of imperialism, the rising capitalist powers that challenged the United Kingdom sought to increase their dominance. Uh, in, in the process, the first and second world wars occurred uh, two wars resulting from the expansion interests of monopoly the capital. The, uh, the stage of, of multi-imperialism led to two, to two um, world wars and the competition between the different sectors of monopoly ca capital led to war. Uh, was central in the analysis by the revolutionaries of the other time. Uh, at that time, and I think we should um, pay attention to this, uh, revolutionary Marxists refused to take sides with any imperialist power. And I think Andreu um, uh, emphasized uh, that, that that's one of the currents uh, in the broad international left. Uh, what the revolutionaries did back then was to reject imperialism from its, from its face. And the Cold War of after 1945, I mean, um, had also, as I mentioned before, the ideological dimension and, and took place uh, during, that, during that time. The, one of the, of the main aspects is uh, the military buildup and the fact uh, uh, that the United States, for the first time in, in, history, in history, kept, even without a war, the high level of military expenditure, most, much, much, much more higher than what you had between the, the two world wars, uh, let alone what, what existed before the first, the first world war. And that has been called by some American economists the permanent war economy. And that characteristic uh, that was present in the Cold War, uh, the previous Cold War, is, is actually present right now. Uh, after the demise of the Soviet Union, Washington continued uh, on that trend of increased military budget. And according to Gilbert Askar, who has a, an excellent book, which I recommend called actually the, the New Cold War, um, the military planning of the Pentagon was based on the possibility of war with both Russia, Russia and uh, China. And that has been uh, on the background, if you, if you will, uh, of the attitudes of Washington towards uh, China and also uh, towards uh, Russia. Um, Askar puts the beginning of this new Cold War with the Kosovo War due to the fact that this was the first time that NATO as such entered into a war uh, without following the, or, or by circumventing the United Nations Security Council. So that was the first real war for NATO and and it happened with the opposition of both of both um, Moscow and Beijing at the UN Security Council, and that has set a, a pattern of ignoring international law, and the and the United Nations um, 
and uh, had that that has been developing since since then. Uh, I think one one egregious example of that was the invasion of Iraq in two thousand and three, and and uh, all the other uh, aggressions. I I also want to mention that there's a, a debate uh, in the left about in certain, certain sectors of the left about the unipolar versus the allegedly multipolar world we are uh, facing right now. And if we compare um, the what happened uh, before the First World War and what is going on after the 1973 crisis, we can uh, show some similarities with, between those two periods, between the periods we are facing right now and the period uh, right before the First World, World War. Uh, in one, we had the United Kingdom weakening as a capitalist power, the rise of new imperialist powers, mainly in Europe, but also in Japan, the world wars between those powers as mechanisms to exercise their dominance over uh, bigger parts of the world. And around these powers, other countries uh, were aligned. Uh, now we have the United States weakening as a capitalist power, the emergence of new imperialist powers, although weaker than the United States, in this case, China and Russia, uh, there has been uh, threats and of world wars between those powers. And again, as mechanisms to exercise their dominance. Uh, and around these uh, countries, uh, other countries, or around these powers, other countries are aligned in, in this, uh, in these inter-imperialist conflicts, the the winner has always been the same, which is um, capital. That's why we say that the we're facing the hegemony of capital without a, a, a counter um, reference or a counter proposal. There are multiple critical sectors of American capitalism that refer to this supposed multipolar world as something uh, positive. Uh, we are told that this new world has multiple powers, uh, mainly the United States, China, and Russia, and that we no longer have a single hegemonic vision, but rather a plural world. Uh, and that it is possible, given the atrocities that the United States commits uh, on a constant basis, like the examples mentioned by uh, Andreu, that is positive that the United States um, lose it, its power. However, we think there are several mistakes in this in this view and in this in these statements. First, the weakening of the United States is a reality of the current crisis of capitalism and the the wave of decelerated development that started in 1973. I know there are debates whether or not we are still in that long wave or whether um, there has been a, a shift. I, I know there are debates about about what happened in the 90s and if after the 2000, 2008 crisis, we're probably facing a new um, wave of accelerated uh, development. That's, that's for us to continue the debate. I don't wanna 
to address. I don't have the time uh, to address that here, but I think we should have that in mind. So um, the strengthening of the new imperialist or potential uh, imperialist forces has little to do with the success of, of other capitalist economic powers. Um, um, secondly, I think um, none of these countries challenge the capitalist production system. Rather, what they do is uh, reintroduce competition between imperialist countries, as was seen at the beginning of the 20th century. And that competition between imperialist countries have paved the way for world wars in the past, and, and that's a threat we're facing, definitely we can be facing today. The current conflict in Ukraine is, is one of those examples. I, I will not get into much of that since it was um, covered with uh, by Andreu. But these atrocities cannot be cannot be ignored. Ignored to see Russia or China or in their allies like Nicaragua anti-imperialist forces like uh, some sectors of the left uh, do because they challenge the American power. Uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a mistaken view. I, um, I think that the this division of the world into blocks or poles or fields has a great disadvantage of um, um, emphasizing the the relations and the solidarity between states and not with the people's struggles. And I agree with Andreu in the fact that we need to support, uh, in the case of Ukraine, the fight for the Ukrainian people for, for self-determination. And we also have to support the resistance of the Russian um, working class. Uh, and I will end um, this, this part of the of the analysis that uh, saying that a we, we need to first uh, oppose definitely the war in Ukraine, but we need to understand that what has developed in in Russia and most recently in China is a direct consequence of the policies, the the neoliberal policies imposed by uh, Washington first in the in, in in the in Russia after the the disintegration of the uh, USSR and and those policies uh, foster the creation and the emergence of extreme nationalism as we see uh, and, and authoritarian regimes, like we see with Putin, and and I said, and as I said, most recently with Xi Jinping in in China uh, these days. Uh, Stefan, how, how much time do I have left? You're at fifteen minutes. I am at fifteen minutes, John. Yes, yeah, so. Right. so I'm 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 gonna wrap it up. Uh, regarding the role of U.S. imperialism internationally and 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 the the ways to fight it, I think that would be great for the discussion with with the group. I must 
I, I will end with this quote from Trotsky, imperialists do not fight for political principles, but for markets, colonies, raw materials, hegemony over the world and all its wealth. Thank you. Thank you so much, Manuel. Our next speaker is Anna from Eco-Socialist Rebellion in Piso, all from Brazil. Hi, comrades. It's an honor and a joy to stay here to share with uh, with uh, with you this kind of so important reflections around the complicated and so much chaotic situation in the world. Um, I'm looking forward to hear you. I think it's very important to hear you because you are in the in the most powerful. A country in the world fighting against the capitalism and the in the crown in the in the center of it. Um, we are in the fourth international trying to since one year ago, and we are going to to, to follow this effort to make a text. Uh, I don't like to to name it a document, but. Uh, uh, try to make a text, an analysis of the international situation uh, with all its complicated aspects. Uh, I call you, I invite you to read the first version of this text we we published in Fourth, the Fourth International site. But this first version is very it, it, it needs a very important updating after all the, the things Andreu uh, analyzed, just like the, 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 the imperialist offensive of Israel and the United States in the, against the Palestinians and against all the people of the Arabian and Islamic countries, neighbor countries. It's historical. The only thing to 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 add uh, to what Andreo said is that a historical uh, problem, historical offensive, and it's very important to us to follow it and understand it in all its impact. And um, I will try to 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 synthesize the three the three issues the three contents you asked me uh, basing me in the in this effort in this text that that we are going to to publish a second version next uh, I think next week I don't know if we, if we can publish it before the IC the February International Committee of the Fourth International, but it's it 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 will be a second an updated version. Uh, first of all, I think we we must say we must uh, uh, put in our analysis of the world situation the climate the the climate and the environment. I I don't know if I can I can speak this word in English is environmental, <laughs> ambiental, la crisis ambiental. 
this problem is the backdrop and the meeting point of all the faces of the the thing we we, we name the multidimensional crisis of the of the capitalism nowadays. And this ecological ecological crisis is provoked by two centuries of predatory capitalist accumulation, and it's escalating. We had last year, two thousand twenty-three the hottest year in the history history of the climate data. Uh, biodiversity is being lost in accelerated um, uh, rhythm. There's pollution, contamination, and pandemics. Uh, the, the globalized corporate economy is, is still based on burning fossil fuels and increasing consumption of meat and ultra-processed food. Uh, we are producing, we, the humanity, the, the capitalism is producing a climate that will reduce the limits within the humanity can live or the planet can survive. Uh, I will not uh, extend much more these 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 analysis, but you can remember that a, a, a lot of parts of the a bit the, the the populated territories of the world are um, are living um, just nowadays the last year the uh, last years um, hot waves that. Are, are doing the life very, very hard. It's the case in Brazil, for instance. Of course, every, everything, this, this, all these disasters in the, in the ecological front will, will be produced without a lot of social conflicts. It will be People displaced by the wars, by the the, the 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 climate disasters, by the food crisis, and by the expansion of the repressive regimes. And meanwhile, everything happened in the world, the world hitting much of the world's post-Stalinist pro-China or pro-Russia left because there is a I don't know you, but here in Latin America, we have a, an important sector of the left that is pro-China and pro-Russia, um, supports Russia and China's governments. These left still have, 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 has a very great difficult, a very hard time grasping the implications of this climatic tragedy and very difficult to large difficulties to incorporate this kind of things in into their understanding of the world, the capitalist world, and in their program. Of course, these disastrous prospects in the ecological field since two thousand sixteen. Uh, have undoubtedly played an important role in pushing part of the bourgeois in the of the bourgeois fractions in all the countries of the western uh, sure sure in the western 
to, uh, how can I say, to detach themselves from the project of a democratic regime. I mean, increasingly sig significant parts of the bourgeois adopt authoritarian alternatives within liberal democracies, resulting in the strengthening of, of right-wing fundamentalist movements and far-right governments, such as those of Trump, Modi, Bolsonaro, Duterte, Millet, um, the Le Pen's movement in France, Vox in the, in the Spanish state. We have um, far-right almost the world. And around the far right, the other the other point you asked me to to speak a little, um, this kind of phenomena, I prefer to speak of a constellation of neo or post-fascisms, because they are not very similar from region or from country to country, but they are they are in general, result of three decades or more of neoliberal democracies crises and their institutions, of course. We think this crisis of the neoliberal democracies have been deepening since 2008, since the, the crash of 2008. And since 2016, it was the Brexit and Trump's victory in the United States. They are um, getting, winning a lot of, of elections around the world uh, inside, within the democratic regions. It's different from the neoclassic, it's, it's a little different, different, different from the neoclassic fascism. And they have, this kind of this kind of far right in in global south i i can say in the north but i i can say it in global south and latin america in particular they have uh, links with Pente pentecostal christians fundamental uh, christian fundamentalist christians and links with the criminal organizations, just like tra uh, drug traffic and militias. How, it's the name we we give in Brazil for uh, ex-militars and police men, uh, criminal organizations. You see the tragic situation of Ecuador nowadays. This, uh, if the old ultra-liberal regions uh, have prov proved themselves incapable of responding to the demands and necessities of the peoples and workers, these kind of governments will do the same because they are ultra-neoliberal. They are not alternative. And we must say in this, in this uh, broad uh, background, backdrop that this is a crisis this crisis is uh, is a crisis of the 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 left no 
the left in the broad sense, uh, social democracies, uh, Democrats in the United States and the progressivism is in Latin America for the from the the first wave, first pink wave in the beginning of the century, they had uh, they formed part of these these democratic regimes and they uh, helped to feed these 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 the situation for the growing for the growth of the of the stream right all the kind of stream rights um of course it's not the case to 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 make a, a sectarian politics just like okay, indicate the duty of the, the the left in this situation but we we should know we should know that no? and say that between us among us um of course this uh, this situation this new situation in the world with a uh, a grossing stream ride uh, is very is very dangerous and is almost the the, the 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 most important political uh, phenomena um, for our programmatic reflection what, what we do what we do uh, in front of Millet, bolsonaro and all those this these guys no the other thing the last one uh, the last the last we issue uh, everybody asks me <laughs> around this, this, this content. Is the Latin American left uh, a broader left that we name, uh, just like the, the the media, the corporate media did, uh, progressivisms? They are, um, and, and media uh, and the corporate media and writers and bourgeois analysts named it pink or red tide for the for Latin America. We are now in a second wave of this kind of governments with uh, within a very difficult situation because in the in the first wave they they could make a kind of social policies a, a, a very shiny redistribution of wealth um, in face of the commodities boom. But nowadays the, 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 the situation, the economic situation doesn't allow that. And in our days, another difference, we don't have differently from the first wave, we don't have um, poles or points of more radical and politicized mobilization process, just like where Venezuela and the, and the first decade of the century and Bolivia in the two first decades of the century. We don't have um, governments, uh, uh, progressive uh, uh, pro uh, governments, just like Bolivian uh, from Nevo Morales and Venezuela from Chavez, because they had really 
a very deep and radical process in their countries, and they had really uh, problems, conflict is the with U.S. imperialism. That's not the case today. That's not the case nowadays. They are in our traditional in our traditional vocabulary lexicon. Uh, reformist governments in general, uh, with uh, reform, reform left, reformist leftist parties in, in the presidency, but they are in general um, um, class, club, class collaboration governments. They You're are not. 15 minutes. Do I have time? I'm, I'm finishing. I'm finishing. Okay. They are not our governments. Although a lot of workers and a, a lot of part of people, poor people and oppressed people see them as theirs or as left governments. The orientation in general is to not participate in them, nor to do, nor to give them an unconditional support. However, in a period marked by the presence and growth of the extreme right, they are governments seen, also seen by the broad sectors of the masses as an alternative, um, electoral alternative to neo-fascism. Thus, studying each national case, each national case in, in its uh, peculiarities, our policy cannot be other than updated and recovered the old Trotsky's policy toward, toward the Popular Front's governments from the uh, hundred years ago. A careful combination of programmatic demands, incentive and support to the struggles of the masses against the neoliberal and the predatory policies, denunciation of the maintenance of the, 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 the neoliberal policies, impose the best ways in the movements to combat the stream rights, but maintaining, the, that's the keeping our independence class independence towards this kind of government. Our independence, the independence of the movements and the independence of the parties in which we milit, in which we are. Um, I would like to make some comments around uh, what uh, Manuel said around the China-United States dispute, but it's it's good for me in general. Uh, we can do with these uh, introductions a good uh, debate. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm finished. Thank you so much, Anna, Manuel, and Andrea, for your lead-offs. Um, we're now moving to the discussion. If you have got a question, just put it in. Put your name in the and uh, that you've got a question in the chat and. I will call on you early on. If you want to make a contribution, please also indicate in the chat um, 
or raise your hand, whatever you prefer here on Zoom. Uh, again, we um, um, came together here, Democracia Socialista in Puerto Rico and Reform Revolution are the organizers. I put the links uh, to our websites, democraciasocialista.net and uh, reformrevolution.org in the chat. Check out our website, uh, our websites and uh, um, help us build for many more successful meetings like this. Um, we have, uh, this is an international meeting. We've got a number of non-native English speakers here in, the, uh, in this discussion. If you speak slow, you do all of us who are not native speakers a huge favor. <laughs> if you turn on your video, it's also easier to understand you if we can see you. Um, so please keep that in mind. And um, I will call on Jeremy to come in. I will tell you after two minutes, just that you know where you are. And after three minutes, I will tell you again, and you should really wrap up. Uh, you can get some different voices in you. And if you want to get on stack, please put your name in the chat or raise your hand. Jeremy, please go ahead. Okay, thank you. Um, I think the the framing of the, the new Cold War is an interesting one and it highlights the uh the importance of this time period and the conflict that's ongoing um i do however feel that there's some limits to to the framing it this way i mean we did not have the same level of of um trading going on between uh russia and the us that we have now between uh china and the us um I would also point out that like in this situation of the the connection between Russia and China, you now have uh, Russia as the more of the little brother in this um, in this power, which is is quite a reversal from the the place that the USSR had in the relationship with with China. Um, I'm also quite curious about this this. Um, this idea of hegemony of capital starting in the 90s and instead of the U.S. Um, I'm not really familiar with this type of theoretical framing. I guess I would kind of, I would frame it a bit more in a more boring way, uh, which I would say the decline of region, the decline of the U.S. has made space for the rise of regional powers, powers. and, and um, um, I'm getting an echo here now. The what uh, what I would kind of point is kind of a a an assault of the heavy weapons of commodities here uh, coming out of China. Uh, first, with I guess you could point to the the loss of the. Um, fight against this type of thing with uh in the WTO uh against this idea that China was dumping onto the international market the rise of tariffs uh against China and um the undermining of the uh WTO courts with the non-appointment through various presidents of of the forces there and then also the overinvestment that China has had uh, on an ongoing period, not just in real estate, but also in manufacturing, which has um, led to some uh, significant advances, especially in batteries, screen technology, um, uh, electric cars, and um, 
some of the related markets. I think, you know, I, you could also add a bit to the idea of the different blocks here with the smaller countries uh, uh, lined against the U.S. Um, joining this type of grouping with China that I would put at the forefront. And the part to go with this also kind of boring framing is that uh, power has shifted and has yet to be reflected in the, the map of power of, of what China is able to influence even around its coasts and its near neighbors. So um, also interested in other people's feedback on these questions as well, though, because I think they're interesting developments with uh, a lot that could be said. Thank you, Charmy. Robin is next. Uh, hello. Uh, thanks to everyone who who, who worked to, to put this together. This is very very interesting. Um, I'm Rob, Robin. I I'm a, a member of uh, Rise in Ireland. Um, my question is to uh, Manuel uh, uh, Manuel in uh, in Puerto Rico. Um, I was reading. I was doing like a very very like surface level research or about the different groups participating. I was just curious about the situation that. Um, that you guys are in at the minute with uh, how 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 is it going with the uh, the 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 MVC I think it was called and the the group you're you're sort of the larger group that you that your organization is a member of and is uh, I know they they got us some some representation in in your parliament and I wonder is are things going well or are there issues or how how are how how uh, like. It are yeah, so it's a sort of an update on how things are going in Puerto Rico. It's not it's not a something I, I am very knowledgeable about at all. So th thanks thanks again for everyone for joining. Thanks, Robin. Alex. Yeah, I had some a question about um a what to do. Uh, I feel like I've heard a lot about like uh, analysis of about like what the situation currently is like, uh, the historic uh, movement and how the right is rising. Um, but I would like to hear a little about what's like, what are the uh, tangible goals we're working towards? Um, what uh, what are we trying to organize for? What immediate change so we can like. Uh, take a step closer to our uh, revolutionary uh, goal and uh, in that discussion this is a question for for all the speakers i suppose uh what suggestions do you have for uh revolutionary marxists here in the united states to uh take also a step in that direction thank you thanks alex next is rui Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Rui, uh, R&R, EM pronouns. I wanted to thank uh, Democracia Socialista and uh, the comrades from Anticapitalistas and uh, PESOL for coming here and wow. talking. I think this is a very useful discussion. I'm very happy we're having it. And I deeply hope that we can uh, deepen the discussion and uh, organizing work we're doing together. Um, I, I share a lot of Alex's uh, questions here on, on the next steps. And if I may be so presumptuous, I, I would propose that is very important, especially for us comrades in reform revolution and us comrades in 
Democracia Socialista to talk actively on campaigns to work on, on opportunities in Puerto Rico and in the United States. In DSA, the biggest socialist organization in the United States right now, um, there is a big culture around doing the work, como hacer el trabajo, right? Um, and the, you will, you must, in a sense, prove your politics in action. And I think this is a mostly correct impulse um, to, to be able to have that broader influence. And I think also to win people to your ideas. It would be, it is very difficult, I've noticed for the current leadership on the International Committee, which tends to be this very, you know, as the comrades have said, pro-Russian, pro-China, you know, very campist uh, politics. Um, I think there's a unique opportunity if we can work together to coordinate our um, our forces on pressure points, uh, understanding that the colonization of Puerto Rico and the way it is currently held as a U.S. territory is a major point of U.S. power in the Caribbean uh, and weakening that by granting rights, uh, by, you know, fighting the the double chains, one could say, on uh, Puerto Rico is going to be a critical way that we can prove our politics in action. And I think also that we can develop what a revolutionary Marxist left uh, alliance has to offer in the context where currently I think the focus is on the biggest party, uh, the biggest forces. So I think DSA works with the PIP and the MVC in a very uncritical way that's mostly cheerleading. So I'll end there. I think working together, practical steps forward, uh, campaigns, right? That will be very critical. Uh, so I hope we can continue that discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Rui. Uh, Henry is next. Hey, comrades, Henry, he, him here in Boston, um, Reform and Revolution member. Um, yeah, first of all, just um, thanks so much to the speakers. Um, in terms of the comrades question uh, about what can we do? I mean, I hope folks have seen like the both SEIU and CWA, the second and sixth largest unions in the U.S., both came out in support of ceasefire. There's a big fight at the UAW, Biden endorsement um, on ceasefire. And we did our first Massachusetts labor action calling for ceasefire. So I think the labor movement is really a, a, a great opportunity for socialists to be involved. And and our and our members are thinking about how do we uplift that? How do we um you know, draw those. So I think that's like one of the most concrete things we can do. Um, in terms of my question, um, I just, uh, there's a book um, by Peter, uh, I'm not gonna, he's a Dutch guy. I forget his uh, last name, but um, The Making of the Atlantic Ruling Class. Um, I think there's the the school of thought is the Amsterdam school. And they have a, um, a really precise, um, they talk about the capital fractions and imperialism, um, how there's different, you know, finance capital, productive capital, et cetera. And it really gives a precision. And then, okay, you have which companies fall into which ones and also which sort of NGOs or political factions of different parties are representing the different interests of the various capital fractions. Um, and so I find it like useful instead of just saying, oh, U.S. capitalism, well, not all U.S. capitalists or the Chinese elite or the Russians, like there's some Russians who, Russian capitalists who want peace. They want because their business would benefit from more from peace than from war. Obviously, the military industrialists, they want endless war. 
Um, so I was wondering if anyone's used uh, any of the speakers have have thought through that lens in terms of what's the inner like the civil war amongst the capitalist uh, class in each country and how does that impact imperialism um, in terms of which uh, sections of capital um, fractions of capital are, are most dominant um, in this current period of sort of a new interimperialist interimperialist cold war thank you thank you henry next one is diane um hi i'm diane from detroit a member of solidarity uh my first demonstration was in 1960 although it took me about seven years to join a socialist group I would say that 1960 was uh, not a particularly good year for uh, the left. So the course of the 60s saw us rebuilding a left. And how was that done? It seemed to me that obviously Vietnam was pretty key to that, the solidarity that we developed for Vietnam, in which there were differences. There were some people who were all Ho 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 Chi Minh, whereas the tendency that I come from was uh, bring the troops home now. Uh, but Vietnam was a, was a key issue for us. Another key issue was rebuilding the unions. Uh, and I think essentially those are pretty key issues for us today when we think about uh, what's happened since then, Nicaragua, Palestine, uh, Ukraine. Um, an upsurge in the uh, labor movement. Uh, I'm a member of the UAW, um, and I would say that although we want a new leadership at the top, we have a big problem because we don't have what we need to be having at the base. And I think this shows the real problems that the left is facing, so that um, in 1968, the, uh, uh, the FI produced a really wonderful document about the three sectors of the world revolution. And I would say right now, we could produce a document on the three sectors of the world counter-revolution with the rise of authoritarianism everywhere. And the left forces, not only small, but really fundamentally divided. So we, we have some very serious problems ahead of us. And to me, it's not so much about rebuilding a revolutionary party as rebuilding the mass movements where we can find them. And the issues that seem so critical are immigration, which is not only a U.S. issue, but ob obviously an international issue, the environment, again. Um, and I would say in terms of the environment, the ruling class has decided what its proposals are a technological fix which doesn't yet exist, and simply adding green jobs to the energy and other things that happen, but no refiguring uh, of the world. Uh, and here I'd say that uh, despite the problems we have in the UAW, are you going to give me a, a, a signal? What is it? You had three minutes, but oh. please finish yourself. Okay, I would just say that What's interesting is that uh, Sean Fain raised some really key points when he challenged 
the leader, the ranks of the union around the questions of, of immigration and put forward the idea of work-life balance. So these are really, uh, I think, uh, key issues that we need to be talking about because what the left does not have is a concrete alternative. That's our problem. Thank you, Diane. Next one is, and please excuse my pronunciation, Defendini? That's the name. Defendini. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Thank you very much. And thanks so much for putting this together. It's been amazing so far. Um, all three of the, the speakers talked a little bit about, you know, the, the, the current state of the world and how it's no longer really a binary, you know, dichotomy, bipolar struggle, right, on, on the international scene. I'd be curious to hear thoughts about uh, what, what the dynamic looks like nowadays in terms of is there a, a, a vacuum of, of, of poles of influence, right? Um, is, is there, are we expanding as Manuel mentioned into a post-national where, where, you know, great capital is, is a large, is a much more overt uh, geopolitical actor, right? As we've seen with some large corporations dealing with China and whatnot. Um, so I'd be interested in hearing a little bit about what, what that looks like now, you know, what, what, where, where the left and where uh, we should be kind of aligning ourselves to to kind of build up, you know, that 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 movement that Diane was just uh, mentioning that we need. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Stefanini. And Philip is next. Hi, comrades. Uh, thank you so much for all the comrades uh, speaking and and joining us for the meeting. It's, it's I agree with what people have said. This is really valuable, and I hope we can do uh, more more of this. I thought the the points that um, Anna Christina made on the contemporary uh, far right, I found, I think, are very relevant for the situation. And, and Anna mentioned it right here in the U.S., but I thought I'd go into a little more with the Trump, with the phenomenon of Trump. Um, Anna highlighted how the far right, a key part of understanding the growth of the far right is the failure of um, the left, and broadly speaking, in different, in different forms. Um, and I think that definitely applies. I wouldn't call the Democratic Party is not the left. Uh, we wouldn't say in the U.S., but in a sense, but that applies in the U.S. And that you can only, I think, understand Trump's rise and, and victory in 2016 and the chance that he the, the prospect that he has a real chance of getting elected again in 2024 is only is understandable against the background of discontent with uh, while the Democratic Party is in, in power with uh, eight years of Obama. Um, and Hillary Clinton's campaign, and now uh, with Biden. I mean, there's much to say about the U.S. political situation, but I think if you want to sum it up in one simple statistic why Trump has a real chance of getting elected in 2024, the fact is, which most of the, of the radical left doesn't like talking about, but the fact is under Biden, real wages have fallen for the majority of workers in the U.S., uh, working people and large sections of the middle class uh, due to the, the rise of inflation. Um, and Biden has not taken uh, necessary measures to combat that. That in itself gives very uh, fertile ground for Trump uh, to stand as an alternative uh, against the status quo, as an outsider, and give some uh, be, uh, give a uh, articulate some uh, give a expression of some of the discontent. But part of that failure, unlike in the first round in 2016, the second round there is a stronger radical left in the U.S. Where we have DSA, for example, 
um, has three members of Congress. And unfortunately, over the last several years, we've seen uh, a, um, the DSA elected in Congress and also on a state and local level moving to the right uh, generally of being more and more incorporated into the Democratic Party. And if Trump, Trump's success in 2024 is it's not the, the primary question is the is disappointment with Biden, but it also reflects the failure of the radical left to stand out as a clear uh, pole of attraction as an anti-establishment, radical, working class, left-wing opposition to the ruling party, the Democratic Party. They have largely been, um, um, have not had that profile, particularly the highest, the highest, most prominent figures in Congress. And that has given room for the Republican right to much more appear as the people who are uh, challenging the, the, the ruling party around Biden. And I would also just highlight on that, and I'll just wrap up on this, Stefan, that I think the develop the shakeup in the UAW with the, the UAWD and Sean Fain is fantastic. I think uh, it's it's one of the most promising signs in the U.S. But I do think on a negative level, just speaking about Trump and the failure of the left to stand out as a alternative poll, it is very bad how Sean Fain just recently announced his endorsement of the UAW of Biden, not recognizing that Trump is the greater evil, which I agree with, and saying it may make sense to vote for Biden in swing states, which I would agree with but an enthusiastic pro-Biden, pro-political support for Biden, saying that he, you know, he's on our side, we're going to support him. That is a disastrous bankrupt policy that, that paves the way for more Trumps. Thank you, Philip. David is next. Oh, hi, uh, David in Detroit with Solidarity. Uh, the United States um, is heading into a very chaotic uh, political situation and electoral season. Um, as I like to call it, uh, our election seasons are nasty, brutish, and long. Um, but uh, there isn't time here to explore one of the main uh, crises that we have, which is the absolute uh, disastrous humanitarian and political crisis uh, going on with uh, immigration and asylum uh, and the Biden administration trying to figure out a way to capitulate to the right wing demands on it. That's really another discussion. I wanted to sort of get a little bit local um, and talk about the fury in the Arab American and Muslim communities over uh, the Biden administration's uh, complicity, actually participation in the uh, Israeli Gaza genocide. Uh, as I've said, you can't really describe the fury unless you've seen it up close. Um, there are leaders in the uh, community saying, we will never vote for Biden, even if the alternative is worse. Um, and this has, uh, this has political implications, and it's part of a growing hemorrhaging of Biden's support among crucial sectors of what was his coalition. Um, young people, uh, including huge numbers of huge numbers of young Jews, um, the African-American community, and as I say, it's particularly sharp among the Arab and uh, Arab American and Muslim communities. We know right now that there are these semi-secret negotiations going on about what would be called a two-month ceasefire, and we don't know how that will turn out or uh, 
nor what the secret provisions of any agreement will be that we won't find out about for you know a long time probably. But if that were to come about, the most critical thing for the movement in the United States around Palestine, which is growing enormously, I would say, uh, the most important thing will be to intensify the demands for a permanent ceasefire to basically make it impossible for the Biden administration to allow Israel to renew the uh, to, to renew the full scale assault after the after whatever pause ceasefire or or whatever it is, um, I would say as one reflection, um, our Jewish Voice for Peace chapter in uh, Detroit, and it's happening all over the country, is just expanding enormously. All kinds of of, of new folks coming in and people being re-energized. One thing that does concern me. Um, as this, uh, right, thank you. One thing that does concern me is uh, with the enormous and impressive and important solidarity with Palestine that's growing, there's what I believe in is an illusion that somehow Palestine or Gaza or Hamas or whatever can, can win this war. This is not a war that Gaza or Palestine can win. It doesn't necessarily mean that Israel will win, there are wars that nobody wins. Look at the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s. Nobody won. Um, but uh, what worries me is that illusion may lead to demoralization down the road. But right now, intensifying the demand for a uh, intensifying demand for a real permanent ceasefire to stop the slaughter, even though it doesn't solve fundamental questions. Um, has to be uh, an, an immediate urgent priority for the movement here. Thanks. Thanks a lot, David. Um, I've got uh, Whitney and myself for a first round. I've got Rui for a short second round. If you want to come in, please put your name in the stack or raise your hand uh, on Zoom. Uh, and then uh, I think we will have a little bit more time for the comments who kicked off our discussion to reply also to a lot of open questions. Um, so uh, please let me know in the stack, raise your hand if you want to come in. Whitney. Hi, um, I'm Whitney. Uh, any pronouns are fine. I'm from Seattle. Uh, r and I'm part of the Seattle Education Association. And um, we had quite an experience getting a ceasefire resolution passed in Seattle uh, in November. Um, and as other speakers mentioned, that has been a, a campaign that kind of continues to unfold. Um, our state affiliate just passed it. And of course, the UAW, SEIU, which I think is, in a sense, the biggest turn because SEIU is a very undemocratic union that um, is a major player in the Democratic Party um, scene. And for them to come out, I was quite, quite surprised. Um, and it feels like, like the last speaker said, this movement is really growing in strength and power. And I feel like it has fundamentally transformed the discussion definitely in the United States regarding Israel and Palestine. I think there's no going back to pre-October 7th, as far as people's understanding goes. And I think there's no going back to pre-October 7th in the relationship of Gaza and the West Bank, the Palestinian Liberation Movement, and Israel. I I think that Israel is becoming a pariah state. 
um, with the ICJ now saying, yes, we're going to move forward with genocide. I think that Israel relies tremendously on that international support and consensus, which has been lost. And my two cents is that I feel like they're going for broke now. They want to level and annex Gaza in order to decimate and decapitate a um, uh, a resistance movement. And I feel like that. I like the the speaker who spoke about this being akin to World War pre World War One. That there are these um, this kind of loss of support is creating these moments where. Um, they're kind of by their own logic of it, these imperialist powers are kind of going for broke. They're kind of taking off the uh, the brakes. And um, I feel like there was some part of that in relation to Russia and Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine. Um, Russia has an aging military and needs to make use of it in order to shore up a better economy for themselves and gain new colonial powers. And I feel like there is a sense of that with Israel now that they're becoming a prior state. And this is this plays out with what folks are talking about on the international um, uh, conflict. Israel is a very important client state for the U.S. And my question, if there is time for folks to answer it, is um, how do people see this changing the the international situation if Israel succeeds in leveling Gaza and then stopping the Palestinian resistance movement, or if they don't, and the U.S. loses a really important client state in the Middle East, um, and they, they continue to be this prior state, how do you see that kind of changing these ramping up of international tensions? But I'm very excited about the rebirth of the anti-war uh, labor movement here, which I think the comrade spoke about the 1960s. Like there's a lot of parallels, and at least in my activism time, I felt like this is a, a real change. Thanks a lot, Whitney. Uh, next, I'll put myself on stack. I think Manuel discussed uh, a bit the multipolar world we are confronted with. And I think it's just for us important to discuss this together, this more as a weakness of US imperialism to just control and, and impose its uh, needs and, uh, and, and power on the world together with the weakness of working class consciousness, organization, and Marxist leadership. I think the combination makes it really quite toxic uh, and a challenging situation. I think just also in the Middle East, what we see now, there is no more Pax Americana, dramatically reduced soft power also of US imperialism, more military power, uh, then and more trial of strength, more really fighting it out um, uh, from a analytical point of view, I think we can say that a weakening of U.S. imperialism is, first of all, a good thing in the uh, in the prospect of uh, fighting back against imperialism, capitalism. But given this situation together with the weakness of working class organization, I think the challenge is that this is also a very messy situation with instability, wars, escalations, where working class people pay the price for that on the ground. And that's where I feel like the political positions we take are quite crucial to point towards the independence of the working class, a socialist program, um, um, and not to just stick with the lesser evilism, so to speak. I, I know the comparison is limited, but the, to acknowledge that Joe Biden is the lesser evil compared to Trump does not force any one of us to support Joe Biden, but to fight for an alternative 
This is a smart approach there. I think the question that weakening of US imperialism in military conflicts, whatever, is the lesser evil does not allow us to lose sight of building working class power internationally and here in the US against the power of US imperialism. It does matter whether US imperialism is weakened compared to right-wing Islamic, Islamistic, conservative reactionary forces like the Hutu movement, who is openly anti-Semitic, or Hamas, a populist right-wing Islamic force, or whether we actually build working class power in the region, internationally and in the US to um, fill that void and, and to, we can um, imperialism there. I feel there is a bit of a search, given this weakness on the left, also for shortcuts of campism, just to oppose US imperialism, or of a trying to find formulas that cover up for our weakness. Like I heard this formulation about critical support or unconditional but critical support towards the resistance. I would not agree with that. I think our starting point is that we develop an analytical position and then we find formulations that help us to get this across to the uh, to working class people more in general and in, here in the US. I think the successes we had in labor unions to pass resolutions for a ceasefire or whatever, they were actually based on acknowledging that we're distancing ourselves from Hamas, from the Houthi rebels, whatever, that we acknowledge the existence of two peoples in the Middle East without losing any sight. This is a battle to fight against the war on Gaza, on Palestinians, against the siege, against occupation, for the right of return, and so on. I think the, the challenge is there in a very abstract way. We can say we are unconditionally for the people's resistance, but it's a very broad sense. If you look at it concretely, I think we end up with a Leninist analysis of the class contradictions within these uh, uh, movements of, for national liberation, where yeah, working class people fight to end the oppression in any form, but capitalist forces, reactionary forces, petty bourgeois forces, they fight for their national liberation to exploit and oppress by themselves. So that's the line where I think these formulations do not help. And we might have to express at this or that stage and this or that country more of an engaging sympathy with uh, um, different forces. But our overall challenge is to build on the independence of the working class put forward socialist ideas. I think that's important because on a capitalist basis without solving the questions of water, shelter, housing, uh, jobs in the Middle East, in Palestine, in Israel, there will be just an ongoing nightmare of nationalist uh, um, battles. But on that basis, I think we can rebuild. Well, I take this as a call to move on and to bring in uh, now as a chair, Rui for a second round with a short contribution. And I have no one else on stack. If you want to use the chance, indicate it now. Um, um, and then we would hand it back to uh, our initial speakers. All right. Thank you very much, comrades. I, I would say um, to speak on the general situation, my short advice would be in order to effectively stop the war in Gaza. And I think the lesson from the last couple of years is that even with all its flaws, um, there is no choice, I think, but to work through the existing left um, with all its flaws. And, and I do not know the situation in Puerto Rico uh, with the MVC or the PIP in its entirety, but I don't think it's possible to go directly to the masses. Um, it is by putting, I think, the socialists and the leftists together and then 
from there going to the masses, to the unions and so on, where we have a greater chance of success. Um, doing that is hard because the left is not perfect and it is trying to find the way forward. And so what Stefan talks about, what the comments have talked about, the campism, the ultra-leftism, that is a natural consequence. But it's very important that we have an understanding of how to win a majority within the left with all of its, uh, you know, growing pains, perhaps, uh, and to use this opportunity to build forward, because I, I'm always skeptical of people saying that this is the biggest crisis yet, the final crisis. Capitalism is a system very stable, very used to crises. We have to patiently build our forces towards the point where we can stop these future, uh, you know, imperialist wars in, in the final way. Uh, but to do so, we must first go through I get the left that exists, then to the masses. And I think we also have to address the issues immediately facing um, the movement, which in this case, as the comrades have stated so eloquently, it is indeed the uh, war in Gaza and fighting for a ceasefire. Um, all right, that's it on my end. Thank you, Rui. I would give Diane two minutes for a second round and then we would move to the sum up. I wanted to talk about the issue of reproductive justice uh, because it seems to me another really central issue, not only for the US left, but another international issue. Uh, even in terms of the war in Gaza, 50,000 women are pregnant and are delivering babies under the most horrendous of conditions. Um, so uh, I think that we can see how determined the authoritarian right is to uh, stamp out any notion of reproductive freedom, not only the reality of it, but even in our own minds, it must be eliminated. And that I think the majority of people are willing to fight around. Uh, we've seen that in successful referendums I very much participated in the one that uh, happened in Michigan um, and uh, aided the one in, in Ohio. Uh, but I also want to make one other point uh, in terms of uh, reproductive justice, that what we now understand, it's really expanded the understanding of what that means, that it's a whole process that goes from birth control through uh, the decision to have a, an abortion uh, having stillbirths and and uh, miscarriages, uh, the the uh, the issue of uh, st being uh, stamping out uh, sterilization abuse, maternity and infant mortality rates, which in the United States have increased over the last five years. So all of these issues are are bundled together, and and I think this is important. I just like to say in response to the last uh, speaker that I think just the opposite. To me, it's not a question of just building up the left. It's about building the left through the mass movements. Thanks. Thank you, Diane. Um, uh, I would give uh, each speaker um, seven minutes to sum us up and then we will keep it overall roughly within two hours. Andrea, do you wanna go first? Yeah, fine. Yeah, just just some um, comments on on some of the interventions of the comrades. Uh, starting with with something raised by Diane um, 
on uh, on the the key issues of the situation and i think that obviously all the all the environmental debate is is key too um and i think that some recent developments like so-called climate leninism is an interesting approach given the centenary of of vladimir Ilyich. also feminist radicalization i think is his long-term dynamic and and it constitutes in my view uh a key lever for progress, progressive renewal in society, and also of labor movements, because uh, there's a growing conscious linked to feminism, in, in a way that of social of the impact on particular impact on women of of growing social inequality, and um, also the the threat of 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 this uh, new uh, authoritarian neoliberal far right in all its forms. Um, and then, um, in fact, actually, um, in, in a chat we have in the leadership of the FI, a comrade just sent an article of the um, Financial Times talking about the fact that nowadays, among the youth, there's a, a growing di divergence between uh, women turning to more progressive uh, political views and the, and the boys more reactionary ones. So I think this is a, a, a very important um, dynamic that we have to study. On the other hand, in fact, um, I must recall that um, it was key, according to some very good analysts, the mobilization of, of, of female vote to avoid the possibility of a right-wing, far-right government here in Spain in, in the elections uh, at the end of July, because um, apparently... Even sort of conservative or even middle class women, it in the last minute turned towards Pessoa to vote for Sanchez to avoid this hypoth hypothetical government of the rights backed by the far right of Vox PP Vox. So I think this is a a very important thing to take into account about some of the things that Philip was was raising. Um, I think that one of the key problems we have is that. The, the right is radicalizing a lot more than the left is radicalizing. And I think that the incapability in, in of the left of of building um, sort of um, blocks, centers of attack, attraction, able to radicalize society in a progressive sense is one of the main problems. In fact, since um, 2008 with the major global capitalist slump, which nowadays the system is not able to relaunch by an accumulation through dispossession, as as David Harvey puts it. I think it's the first time in history where a massive uh, and 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 uh, a very long uh, capitalist uh, crisis hasn't reinforced labor movement as a, as a whole, as did happen in the thirties, where you had a growth both of uh, New Deal in the U.S. and uh, progressive forces, but also socialist, communist, and revolutionary left. Nowadays, we have the contrary. And I think, in a way, this has to do with the fact that there's no major uh, major social gains that are able to crystallize sort of a stable organizing uh, among uh, new generations of workers. And I think this is a, a key aspect. And finally, about some of the things that David was was posing. I agreed with the possibilities of international solidarity around Gaza. In fact, as Enzo Traverso puts it, uh, he says that one of the most representative Jews 
of the first half of the 20th century, Ostrowski, and he said the most representative of the second half was Kissinger, uh, hopefully with a radicalization of some in very important layers of the uh, of the, um, the 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 Jewish youth in the U.S. around the solidarity with Gaza. Uh, Gaza, we can hope that uh, the former the 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 former will will be more popular than the latter. In any case, um, I really think that um, there's possibilities in this situation, and this is one of the main key uh, tasks nowadays to relate to all this uh, anti-war radicalization. Thanks a lot, Andreo. Manuel, do you want to go next? Yes. Um, I I think the the interventions of of Congress um, uh, calls for for a, a, an, a, another meeting, and and I and I agree that we should um, try to, to to get you know uh, regular regular gatherings like this one. I I just want to address um, Jeremy's uh, comment um, when we talk about when we use the term hegemony, we we don't give it the um, Gramsci's uh, uh, sense. We were talking about the supremacy that one state exercises over, over another state. And, and when we say uh, capital was the, the victor uh, after the, the, the previous Cold War, it is because um, it's sort of a supranational uh, agenda. We, we're fighting, when we compare what we're facing in each of our countries, either in, in imperialist countries or in the global South, we're facing the same uh, the same agenda. And we need to, to get into um, our analysis into uh, what what is like this new um, recomposition of the world powers. I wanted to uh, address it, the um the tasks we have we have ahead of us what 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 to do i think eco socialism socialism is also a, has also a potential of of mobilizing and and attracting uh young people and i think we we are current ha has the i mean has put eco socialism socialism as a central aspect of our of our fight and, and of our struggle. And from for us in Puerto Rico, uh, where we face the, the extreme uh, consequences of the climate crisis, uh, that has been one, uh, one key aspect of, of, our, of our work and, and the organization. I think that the threat and uh, the development of the far right in, in uh, all around the world, but particularly in the United States, um, is is the most uh, dangerous threat we're facing right now, with the possibility of Donald Trump returning to the presidency of the United States and the implications that will have on a global scale. And I agree with Andreu that the the right and the far right radicalizes more and more, and what we see is the. Uh, a tendency to moderation uh, of the broad uh, parties, of the broad left parties, uh, both as opposition and, and once in, in government. So that's one um, challenge we are also um, facing. I definitely, we need to, um, to 
to strengthen the uh, independence or to to push for the independence of the working class, Stefan, where de definitely we need to um, to try to, given the weakness we're facing now, to to maintain the centrality of the working class and the independence of the working class, uh, particularly in the uh, national liberation movements. I, I totally agree with what, what you um, stated. Uh, but the the class struggle would be definitely, and and I I also uh, I share Philippe's view on the importance of the resurgence of a democratic uh, labor militancy in the United States and the results of the um, UAW strike against the three big companies. But uh, that's and, and you can correct me if I if I read it wrong. That's not the majority of the organized labor movement in the states uh, so far. It is an important step. It's an important victory. But uh, I think that efforts like the uh, rank and file project of DSA is a is a project we need to look at and 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 also contribute to strengthening. Um, from the national perspective regarding the. Um, class struggle in the states, I think we should continue to support efforts like labor nodes, for example, where uh, much of these discussions and, and coordination of actions uh, have been um, uh, developed, if you will. And internationally, we need to figure out uh, spaces of exchange uh, of militants and leaders uh, of rank and file uh, labor leaders. There's there's an effort I want to mention, and I want to invite you to uh, eventually join if you can. Is the Third World Congress against neoliberalism in, in education that will take place this year, uh, the second uh, half of November in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. That's an effort of one comrade of Fourth International, uh, Luis Bonilla from Venezuela. He's currently teaching in Brazil, and I think that would be an excellent opportunity to, to get together um, labor activists in the education sector and, and those type of initiatives I think we should um, promote. Um, the, the challenges, as Philippe mentioned, for the US left are tremendous. There's, a, and I, I mentioned this before the, the meeting to Stefan, there's the absence of a figure like Sanders that can help out the, the left in the US to, to uh, promote, organize, and mobilize for the uh, uh, upcoming elections. There's the disasters, there are the disasters of the Biden administration and, and the, the support given by the militant uh, leaders of the working class right now that puts uh, the left also in a in a difficult position, and uh, the threat of Trump Trumpism or the far right that also uh, the U.S. Uh, is uh, facing, and um, I want to um, comment on on what Stefan said about the convenience or or uh, of the weakening of the of U.S. imperialism. Definitely, it is good. It's a good thing that the U.S. imperialism uh, weakens, but also we need that China and Russia weakens as well. You know, we need to support the, the class struggle in those countries because uh, we are anti-imperialist, no alter-imperialist. No, not to to fall on, on that. And 
I would like to get the last uh, minutes I, I have just to mention the experience in Puerto Rico in Victoria Ciudadana. Uh, uh, well, just just I finished with with this. We we had a we have now one senator of Democracia Socialista in Victoria Ciudadana. Currently, is, is Rafael Bernabe, and for the upcoming elections, we made an alliance with the pro independence party PIP, um, which is prohibited by law. We are challenging that uh, as we can, and we have the potential of electing more members of DS and increasing the number of members in the House and in the Senate of uh, Victoria Ciudadana, the Alliance, also the possibility of winning the, the mayor of San Juan, and, and even the, the, the governor of polls uh, with the candidate of PIP is a strong possibility. Too soon to, to tell, but we'll, we are very optimistic about the work we are, have been able to do while constructing a revolutionary organization and also building the mass, the, the broad uh, party in Puerto Rico. Thank you, Stefan. Thank you so much, Manuel. Anna, please come in and wrap us up as the last speaker here. Yes, um, I'm very happy with the, the development of the discussion. I heard you with from the bottom of my heart and I think it's very important to to revolutionary cadres just like you to from from the rank and file from the grassroots movements to discuss the international situation because there are not there are, there are not contradictions between being in the struggle and learning with the struggle and making the effort to understand the new York, new world. Um, a few words around the, the crisis. You, know? uh, you you see the, the document, the, the, the tentative text of, uh, from Nephi, and we will see we make an important effort to understand the new world, the new period. Uh, we say is a new historical period since 2008. Why do we do that? It's not to 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 make a distress to to take the the cadre to take the militants from the the the, the fight from the fronts from the work in the bases, but is the is the necessity to understand the world to make a new revolutionary to make with the movements a new revolutionary program for a new time, for a very complicated and delicate time. And so um, all, we, all we see some, I, I remember one comment, comment, comment around our emphasis in the crisis, how our analysis and characterization is not to conclude that the situation is, is positive, is favorable for the workers and oppressing in the world. On the contrary, the, 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 the description of the situation makes evident, self-expressive, that uh, the situation is a lot, is very unfavorable, is very negative, is very complicated, is very... Uh, 
plane of challenges, new challenges. The, the thing is, uh, we discussed in the last IC, we be, became to discuss a, 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 a very collateral uh, aspect of the crisis because a lot of uh, historians and analysts and, inter and left intellectuals asks and compares the present situation with that situation in the 20s and 30s of the 20th century. Of course, it's it's very similar in, in a lot of, of, of signals, but there are a lot of difference, bad difference and some good difference. The main bad difference is that makes this situation, the present situation, unpredictable and, and completely how is the, the unprecedented is the ecological crisis. They they didn't have, they didn't have the conscience, they, they, they didn't have the ecological crisis uh, a thousand, um, a hundred years ago. And the second, I think Andreu mentioned it, that's very important too, is the, the different situation of the, the configuration of the workers, of the worker classes all around the world, not only the global north. Um, it doesn't mean that this, this reconfiguration of the class um, make it, uh, made it stop to fight. There are a lot of fights all around the world, uh, less than um, before the pandemic, but there are a lot of fights from workers, from women, from ethnic, ethnic and religious uh, minorities, persecuted minorities. There is a lot of fight. Uh, the parallel, this is a new era of catastrophe. It's a new catastrophe era that's the, uh, the, the, the expression that Hobbesbaum uses in the, in the book around the, the, the book on, on, the, on the 20th century. Um, I, I hope I, I, I explained our, our, our insistence in talking about the, the, the kind and the, and the, the multidimensional uh, nature, nature of this crisis. Finally, I would like to say something around the, the we say uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a tentative synthesis between all the forces of the Fourth International, that is in course, in March, in work is an, is an open work, a reconfiguration of the geopolitical order. We don't see, I think for us Marxists, it's not convenient to use this kind of uh, international relations, realistic <laughs> um, concepts, just like polar, one polar, multipolar. There is a tendency, there is a tendency of chaos, for one hand of chaos. In, in another hand, a tendency of a bipolarization between, between a block, a block from the old imperialism and a new block in, in construction, building itself a block around China, Russia, 
Of course, Russia is different from China. Of course, it's another imperialism with very specific uh, goals. It's a more regional imperialism. It's imperialism, um, and they are doing a very smart thing from the point of view of a of a emerging um, emerging power in the world. They are doing. They are trying to transform the BRICS in a, uh, in a in a weapon of this dispute. It's BRICS is not more a weapon of the, the South Global. It's not more. If it was someday, BRICS is a weapon and <laughs> controlled by China. No? And I personally, I love Gilbert, Gilbert Ashkar. I love, I think his work is wonderful. The book is very good, the, the new Cold War. But, but I prefer to say, uh, to, to, to express the thing as a, as a construction of a dispute, inter-imperialist dispute. Why not a Cold War? I think Ashkar has a, a little problem that's not understanding completely what's China. China is not uh, an alternate, a leftist alternative just was US as Soviet, Soviet Union in the 20s. And I don't like the, the, the besides that, I think the, the war will be very hot, not cold, very hot. That's the, the, the perspective, I think it's, but, but the, the studization and the, and the analysis he, he makes in the book is wonderful. I think we need to think about it, read the book, read another, another opinions and uh, continue to discuss between us. But thank you very much um, for all. I hope you, you can help us to understand better and um, for the action for, for, for the action in this complicated world. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anna. Um, I hope for everybody who was here, this was a contribution to the ongoing discussions of revolutionary Marxists, of understanding the world with the purpose of changing it in a struggle for a socialist liberation, the self-liberation of the working class. Really, thanks a lot again to uh, Andreu, to Manuel and Anna for kicking us off, for everyone who contributed here in discussions and everyone who was here. Um, I really appreciate it, uh, Democracia Socialista in Puerto Rico co-hosting this with us. Um, I put the links again in, in the chat, democraciasocialista.net, and uh, Manuel also added the magazine, momentocritico.org. Uh, Reform and Revolution, uh, our website is reformandrevolution.org. Um, yeah, I'm sure that uh, we touch on many questions without being able to fully dive into it again. We will continue these discussions and uh, very optimistic about uh, our joint struggle, continuing together to uh, yeah change this world where we face so much horror, war, 
and pure just destruction and the challenges are big for us. That's it for today. Um, uh, have a nice Thank rest you. of the day. Thank you. Bye now. Thanks a lot for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye, comrades. Bye.